welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. Today is February 19th, and today we're going to look at Genesis 50. Uh, Just as a reminder, every day I read one chapter from God's Word. So today we're going to read from and look at Genesis 50, and then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and theology very briefly. My goal is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day. So let's take a look today at Genesis 50. Genesis 50 says this, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, and that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the house of the Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. And so Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of, of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abal Mazram. It is beyond the Jordan. And thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at the field of Maccabah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that, that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, and he and his father's household. Joseph lived 110 years. 
And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machbor, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died, being 110 years. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Well, this is the reading, our reading today from God's word. Now, Joseph does not call upon the special class of professional embalmers found in ancient Egypt to preserve his father's body. Instead, he asks his physicians to embalm Jacob in verse 2 of our chapter today, a process in which the internal organs are removed and the body is wrapped with spices. It is not entirely clear why Joseph turned to physicians and not the full-time embalmers to accomplish this task. One likely possibility is that these doctors would preserve the body without performing the usual magical rites that accompanied embalming. Well, in any case, the process takes the customary 40 days to complete. It's probably coextensive with the 70 days of mourning, as we see in verse 3 of our chapter today. Moses again shows us Joseph's faithfulness to his father in our chapter today. In accordance with his oath to bury Jacob in the promised land in Genesis 47 and 49, Joseph goes before the household of Pharaoh to secure the king's leave to keep his promise to Jacob in verse 4 of our chapter today. Now, notice that he does not go before the Pharaoh himself. Rather, he approaches the household, a shorthand way of saying that Joseph addresses a king through court officials. Perhaps one commentator notes there were traditions associated with mourning that made it impossible for Joseph to approach the Pharaoh directly. Well, Jacob's favorite son is deferential when speaking with the king. His conditional statement, if now I have found favor, is designed to communicate the gravity and the importance of the request. Joseph implies here that his stewardship should give him enough standing in Pharaoh's eyes to have his wish granted. In fact, Joseph leaves out Jacob's plea that he not be interred in the land of the Nile in Genesis 47, as well as his desire to lay with his ancestors in Genesis 49, most likely because he did not want the Pharaoh to doubt his loyalty to Egypt. So Joseph pledges to return to Egypt and even stresses that Jacob belonged in the tomb that he labored to prepare to assuage any fears that the king might have. And so Pharaoh grants his request in verses 5 through 6 of our chapter today. And though an adult himself, Joseph uh, remains committed to honoring his father by honoring his godly plea for burial in Canaan. May we all be likewise committed to respecting our elders. You know, as we grow older and even leave our parents, it can be hard to understand what it means to honor our father and mother as we're commanded in Exodus 20:12. And still, this command does not become null and void once we no longer live in our parents' household. We are still obligated to respect them and even to seek to fulfill their godly requests. We may honor our father and our mother by endeavoring to spend time with them, learning from them, and doing what they ask us to do. Yahweh told Jacob that Joseph would close his eyes and that he would be brought up again to the promise land in Genesis 46. God said, in other words, that he would allow Joseph to be present at Jacob's death and then later to let him return to Canaan. And so Joseph was indeed privileged to see his father pass away in Genesis 49 through 50. In our chapter today, it describes Jacob's return in body to his father's land. 
And so once more, we're to understand that the Lord keeps his word. Now, the original audience of Genesis, the Israelites, were freed from Egyptian slavery. They also need assurance of the faithfulness of God. And so our father inspired Moses to write Genesis to tell the people of God that they must stand against the Pharaoh and even follow Moses into the promised land. And by keeping his promise to Jacob, God revealed his fidelity to the Israelites and even gave them confidence that he would keep his promise to be with them as they left the land of the Nile, as we're going to see in Exodus 3 through 4. Our chapter showed Jacob's descendants that they must leave Egypt and go to Canaan. Like Abraham before him in Genesis 12 and his offspring generations later, Jacob went down into the land of Canaan and then returned to the promised land, even if he died first. In fact, the Hebrew word for went up in Genesis 50, 7 through 14, it describes the Exodus. In fact, the route the mourners took with Jacob's body is likely the same one his progeny followed to carry Joseph's bones to Canaan in Exodus 13. Finally, a great company departed Exodus in our chapter today, just as in Moses' day. Jacob's return, even in death to Canaan, predicted the Exodus centuries beforehand. Since the promised land was the realm of God's presence and blessing, Jacob's voyage from Egypt to Canaan dimly reveals his passing from death to life, which will be fully consummated at the resurrection, as we see in Revelation 20, 11-15. Today we can rejoice when a believer dies, even as we grieve our loss, because he knows that he has entered new life. John Christianem comments, since death has been turned into slumber and life's end into repose, and since there is greater certitude of the resurrection, we rejoice and even exult at death like people moving from one life to another. The death of a believer provides us with a good opportunity to reaffirm our belief in the resurrection of the dead. And though we properly grieve the loss of a loved one because we no longer have fellowship with them on earth, we should also be joyful because we know that our separation will only be temporary and that those who die in Christ Jesus have certainly passed into new life. Do what you can to encourage other believers to rejoice in Christ when Christians die. You know, God's sovereign decree, his eternal effectual plan, it establishes everything that happens in the universe according to Ephesians 1.11. This fact does not mean that God is the only cause of what happens in creation. His decree also establishes secondary causes that produce real effects. Physical laws, human choices, and contingencies are established by the decree and operate according to what God has decreed. And these secondary causes, they produce real effects in the world. Our decisions are not illusions, but they create actual results that are meaningful because they are incorporated within the decree of the Lord, who alone gives meaning to all things. So we're going to talk about this in great detail, how the secondary causes of human actions are related to what God does in his providential governance. We're we're talking, though, about the fact that God ordains what we do. He does not force us to act against our desires. We do what we most want to do, even in situations where we feel constrained. We may feel like we do not want to hand over our wallet to a robber. And all things being equal, we have no desire to give our money to thieves. But if the only alternative to handing over our wallet when a robber confronts us is to be killed by the robber, we will give it up. In that situation, we desire to live more than we desire to keep our money. Because we always do what we most want to do in every set of circumstances, God can bring about the ends he desires without violating our wills. But in any given situation, while the ends towards which God and his creatures aim may overlap, the desires motivating the Lord and those motivating his creatures, they don't always match, we know. 
The patriarch Joseph's life provides the classic example of this. Joseph's brothers sent him off as a slave in Egypt in Genesis 37. Their desire was wholly evil. They wanted only to see Joseph suffer. But later, after Joseph became Egypt's prime minister, he told his brothers that that God also sent him to Egypt. And yet, the Lord sent uh, Joseph to Egypt, not because he wanted Joseph to suffer, but so that Joseph could save many people from famine. God's desires was entirely good and holy, as we see in Genesis 50, 15 through 21. Here, we're talking about the flowing together a divine and creaturely volition and activity is known as concurrence the lord and creaturely moral agents such as human beings and angels simultaneously act to actively fulfill god's decree but while god's purposes for bringing about a certain end are always righteous those of his creatures are sometimes sinful in fact we must say that the doctrine of concurrence it tells us that both god and human beings make things happen according to their respective places in the decree of god the actions of both parties are essential in the prescribed way this does not mean that we can be fatalist and think oh well it doesn't matter what we do we're not robots it actually matters our decisions and actions are vital and without them things will not happen and so even having looked at the death and the funeral of jacob already moses tells us about the final days of joseph's life and the final few verses of the book after burying their father joseph's brothers feared for their safety in egypt it seems they believed that joseph had been kind to them only for jacob's sake with the patriarch gone they evidently thought joseph might do unto them as they did unto him in verse 15 of our chapter now joseph's brothers still suffered from guilt and fear we do not know if they ever asked joseph to forgive them though they displayed uh, their changed hearts in chapter 44 but it seems unlikely as their guilt and distrust persisted making them afraid of their brother why else would they fear joseph even after he voiced his pardon and provided for their needs in the land of the nile in genesis 45 guilt makes us ashamed to face god and the people we have offended unless we confess our sin to him Matthew Henry cites, a guilty conscience exposes men to continual fright. Those who would be fearless must keep themselves guiltless. You know, we know that men often lie when they're afraid. And Joseph's brothers may have been to the truth when they claim that jo- Jacob uh, told Joseph to pardon them in Genesis 50, 16. That was entirely unnecessary. Their brother was not a vindictive man. And yet their confession of guilt was genuine, even if they lied. The brothers did not pretend that their deeds were not wicked. They confessed their sin against Joseph using three of the four uh, Hebrew terms for iniquity, which are translated transgression, sin, and evil. In verse 17, they also professed to serve the God of their father, implicitly begging Joseph to imitate God's forgiving nature, as we see in Psalm 130, verse 4. Now, Joseph wept. Probably his brothers had not yet received his love, and he began assuring them again of his pardon, displaying mature faith when asked, Am I in the place of God? What what he really meant was this, Brothers, I am not God, and it's not my place to take vengeance. I forgive you. So God's people trust him, not themselves, to repay transgressors, as we see in Proverbs 20, 22. Now, Joseph never sought revenge on his brothers, but do we do the same when we're sinned against? Yet, we are to forgive as well, even if we find it difficult. John Calvin writes that even if we have an arduous conflict with the impetuosity of an angry temper or an obstinacy of a disposition to hatred, we must pray to the Lord for a spirit of meekness, the fourth of which manifests itself not less effectually at, at this day in the members of Christ than formerly in Joseph. 
Now, God's act of providence can be difficult to understand or even accept. The things that happen to us may not seem good at all. In fact, we may be the victims of acts of real evil, but that does not mean that God is not working through the evil to bring about his purposes. Joseph learned this lesson through a series of very unhappy experiences. Jacob was blessed with 12 sons, but Joseph was his favorite, as we see in Genesis 37.3. Jacob therefore gave Joseph preferential treatment, causing his brother to be intensely jealous of him. Now, when an opportunity presented itself, they sold him to a group of Midianite traders who, traders who in turn sold him to an officer of Pharaoh in Egypt. Later, his master's wife falsely accused him of trying to assault her, leading to him being imprisoned. He helped a fellow prisoner, a servant of Pharaoh, and asked only that the man would put in a good word for him to the king when he was released, but the man forgot to do so for two years. How much tribulation and disappointment could Joseph stand? Well, we also see Joseph was able to interpret a dream for Pharaoh and was subsequently elevated to a position of power subordinate only to the king. Now, in that role, he was charged with preparing Egypt for the coming famine that had been revealed in Pharaoh's dream. He performed his task so well that when the famine came, enough grain was stored to meet both Egypt's needs and those of the foreigners. Thus, it was that Joseph's brothers eventually uh, journeyed from Egypt to buy grain to make bread. But And Joseph it at last could see that God had used all the bad things that happened to him to bring about a very good end to put him in a position from which he could save many souls, including those of his father and brothers. Now, the unpleasant or evil things that occur to us may not be part of God's plan to bring us to positions of power, but they are ordained by God for some good end. This scriptural teaching that the God uses even evil acts of men to accomplish his good purposes is known as the doctrine of concurrence, as we've talked about. The doctrine of concurrence reminds us that God ordains not just the ends, but the means. Human beings are free to choose as they desire, and they will bear the guilt when they choose to sin. But God somehow works in and through these choices. His providence accomplishes even the evil that men do. Have you been, ever been betrayed by a friend, falsely accused, unfairly overlooked, or even otherwise mistreated? Whoever did such to you was likely acting in an evil way. But scripture also affirms that God too has a purpose even in the evil things that happen to you. A good purpose. Ask the Lord to help you to keep this in mind when you're tr ill-treated. Now, we must say that conversion to Christ brings with it a great deal of blessing. Chief among these blessings are that we have peace with God, we receive Him as our Father, and have the sure hope of eternal life. We also benefit from the joy that is given to us as part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. And yet, at the same time, we know that Christianity does not carry with it a guarantee of freedom from pain and suffering, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. In fact, becoming a Christian may lead to rejection by family by friends, a loss of work, other trials directly related to a profession of faith. Even if we do not face overt persecution for our faith, living in this fallen world means that we will endure suffering in the form of sickness and even disease. No matter the form our suffering takes, God's word has much to say on its place in the Christian life. You know, we can say that suffering has a way of cutting through the abstract theology and getting to the heart of the manner that seems most pressing and most practical. In fact, most significantly, suffering has a way of prompting us to ask God why he has allowed particular tra tragedies to come into our lives. 
Such questions arise, and many people seek to remove God from any association with pain. Some individuals state that the Lord has nothing at all to do with suffering. They suggest that he did not bring into our lives, that he doesn't want it to happen, that his hands are entirely clean as it were. But this answer doesn't stand under the scrutiny of God's word. God works out all things according to the counsel of his will, not just the happy things, as we see in Ephesians 1.11. The Lord is sovereign even over our suffering, and he ordains it for a specific purpose. Joseph found strength to persevere in the midst of his suffering in Egypt because he understood that the pain he endured was sovereignly established by God in order to put him in place to save many lives in Genesis 50, 15-21. We can be confident that God works all things, including our suffering, for our good and for his glory, as we see in Romans 8.18 and Romans 8.28. You see, God always has a good purpose of allowing suffering to come into our lives, but we do not always know what that purpose is. And yet, because we know that the Lord is perfectly good, as we see in James 1, 13 through 18, we trust that he will work out all the pain that we endure for our final good and for his final glory. The better we know the character of our creator, the better we will be able to trust in his goodness and the grace that, that he gives through Christ in the midst of all of our suffering. Divine providence, though it was once spoken of reverently by people throughout the Western culture, it is today but an afterthought of the vast majority of people both inside and outside the church. Our society is dominated by naturalistic materialism. We are conditioned to think that we can explain everything by reference to fixed causes within a closed universe that is not subjected to divine intervention. And though believers confess faith in a creator who continues to work in his creation, we often end up living as practical atheists, failing to recognize the Lord's continual guidance and control of everything that happens in our lives. A scripture cautions us never to ignore God's providential uh, ordering of his creation. Biblically speaking, providence refers to several different activities of our creator in this world. First, there is the sustaining providence of the Lord. God did not just create the universe and then walk away from it, leaving it to depend on itself for its own existence. Instead, the Lord continues to sustain all of his creation. As we're talking about here today, if our creator were not actively sustaining that which he created, it would simply cease to exist. God, through his Son and by his Spirit, upholds the world by the word of his power, as we see in Hebrews 1.3. That is the only reason why everything even exists and continues to exist. Providence also refers to divine concurrence, which is the Lord's working in and through his creation and his creatures to bring about what he planned. Concurrence affirms that in all of our activities, God is working at the same time we are working. We might not have all the same intent, but the Lord is acting through our actions and intentions to fulfill his plan for creation. Perhaps the clearest example of this is a story of Joseph, at the end of which we read that what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good, as we see in Genesis 15. 5020. See, Joseph's brothers did not sell Joseph into slavery apart from the decree of the Lord. In fact, God's decree established that they would sell him into slavery and that the Lord would work through this decision to save many people. God's working in the situation was pure, for although the selling of Joseph into slavery was an evil, our Creator had a righteous intent in permitting it. Joseph's brothers truly intended to do him harm, and God let them do that so that he could put Joseph in a place to save the world from a horrible famine. And thus, we derive great comfort from God's providence. Because the Lord ordains whatever comes to pass, we can be sure that he is always working, even in the midst of evil, to bring about a marvelous good, as we see in Romans eight twenty eight. 
Now, only if God ordains all things can we be confident that he is working all things together for our good. Because even evil is a part of the Lord's plan, we know that there is a reason for every bad thing that happens to us, even if we do not learn the reason on this side of heaven. God is not the author of sin, that is, he is not morally responsible for it, but he uses sin in all things to bring about our good and his ultimate glory. So, affirming the biblical understanding of election is not usually a way to mend many friends and influence people, right? Most Christians are shocked that anyone could believe God's choice determines who will be saved. Others scratch their heads when Reformed believers get excited and even promote the Lord's sovereignty over all things. After all, what is the practical relevance of the doctrine of election and providence? We ought not to fault Christians who reject Reformed theology because they have heard it only from overbearing Calvinists. Nevertheless, we confess wholeheartedly that our Creator's sovereignty is the most practical of all doctrines, as our chapter today talks about. Joseph assures his brothers of his pardon, stating the lesson his life teaches us. God overrides the intents and deeds of wicked men to bring about good in Genesis 50:20. Or, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, as we see in Romans 8:28. What the Lord does and, and allows is always good, because a good and praiseworthy end is always his goal, and the Lord always accomplishes it. God blamelessly works concurrently with men, even in their evil intents, to achieve an ultimate end. We can only trust with confidence a Lord who controls everything. If he is unable to use wickedness to further his plan, then evil remains free from his rule, and we could never be sure of his final victory. Now, some some say God only foresees human decisions without ordaining them, but Scripture never teaches this. Moreover, if the Lord only looks into a future in which he has not ordained all things, then there are ch- a chance events to come that he will have no control over. How then is he God in any meaningful way, we must say? How then can he prevent uh, those events he finds undesirable? And if the Lord is sovereign over all things, and he is, then every wicked event is in his plan, not because he loves evil, but because he wants to work through and against the sin to achieve a worthy end. Knowing that God does this enables us to fight the good fight of faith and to even to stand against the forces of darkness. Nothing they do is outside of the Lord's will, and so they can never derail his good plans. Here are these encouraging comments from John Calvin when he said, Let the impious busy themselves as they please. Let them rage. Let them mingle heaven and earth, and yet them gain nothing by their ardor. And not only shall their impetuosity prove ineffectual, but they shall be turned to an issue, the reverse of that which they intended, so that they shall promote our salvation, though they do it reluctantly. Rejoice and even be glad, for our God reigns over both good and evil. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and today is February 19th, and we've looked at Genesis 50. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.